Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Matt Dixon. And I'm Franz Borchardt. And today, well, again, today, uh, it's just Franz and I. We don't have any friends. Oh. Uh, we still haven't found any. It's going downhill. It's going downhill rapidly. But uh, there is a reason why we don't have any uh, guests with us today. Uh, and that's because two of us are going to talk about a policy area that affects both of us and that isn't affected at the moment by the current political uh, flux and, and general kind of policy vacuum for domestic policy that's been going on for, mm. for quite some time, right? Um, so last time we were talking about the review of uh, post-18 education and, and higher education funding and all that sort of thing. Um, and towards the end of that, we talked about the politics of this uh, and whether anything will actually get implemented. And really, we just, we just don't know, right? So we yeah. don't know on that particular policy, and we also don't know on lots of kind of domestic policy agendas we don't know until things are kind of resolved you know we don't want to talk about brexit but you know yeah, until those things are resolved we're not going to know um what the economy is doing how much money the government has to spend and also what kind of capacity uh, at the moment you just hear that all the civil servants everybody's just getting sucked into the brexit kind of vortex right and that's where all the time and energy and everything and capacity is going so we don't know what's going to happen with lots of areas, and that affects HE2. That affects the kind of all the um, recommendations of the review we were talking about last time. Correct. However, however, as we're both very well aware, one thing um, in higher education that's definitely happening next year is something called the Research Excellence Framework, or the REF. Uh, now, that is a, a phrase, the REF, that will strike fear into the hearts of lots of uh, academics up and down the country. All uh, academics, I hope. All academics, right? And this is something that we're, we're both um, involved with, and, and France, particularly at your university, you're heavily involved with. So we thought it would be useful to kind of just uh, talk about this and uh, make the non-academic people aware of, of this thing. Of our tough life. Yeah, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, exactly. So uh, maybe just tell us, so what is this research excellence framework? Yeah, so the Research Excellence Framework, its I think it's a bit of a bad name. Somebody had a little bit too much time on their hands when they came up with this name. It's the continuation of something that's called the Research Assessment Exercise, which is a much better name because it tells you exactly what it does. Yeah, I've always right? thought that. I don't, I don't know who decided to change it. I mean, Research yeah. Assessment Exercise is, is does what it says it. on the tin, right? Yeah. But, yeah. So... It's, it's Anyway, here we are, Research Excellence Framework. That's the new name for basically what is a research assessment exercise. So just to take it uh, back a step here. The idea here is that science funding in the UK is, well, at the moment, about 1.7% of GDP. And a lot of that money flows towards universities, obviously, right? So universities have a remit not just to do education and teaching, but also to, you know, uh, to, to do research, to drive forward innovation and, uh, uh, and, and create new things, essentially, be that ideas or be it physical things. So that needs to be funded. And the UK operates something called uh, what's called the sort of the dual funding model, uh, where um, I'm going to do this very roughly around half the available research money that goes to universities is essentially just given to them, and they can do whatever they like with it. And the other half is given to research councils where um, individual academics or teams of academics, you and I, compete competitively with their ideas, with their projects to access that money. So it's kind of a 50-50 split. And the idea here is really that you make lots of people compete for the money, but because not everybody will win in that competition, you also give 
all the universities some money so that they can share uh, that money out and everybody gets to do a little bit of research. Uh, so that's the underlying concept. But of course, to decide how to give half of that money away to the universities, you need some sort of metric. And that's evolved over many decades now. Uh, and unfortunately, it, 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 it is a very metrical game these days. Uh, well, I say unfortunately. I mean, it depends how you, how you view the world. I guess there's got to be some way. So as you said, so half of the money goes to the research councils and then we know the allocation mechanism is, is, is a competitive process. Yes. And we know we've talked quite a lot uh, recently uh, to different people about competitive markets and the market mechanism. I'm particularly thinking about the health market and, uh, and the theory that, okay, so some competition will drive standards up and and that's the kind of idea so okay that's the allocation mechanism but then on the other half the stuff that goes to universities we've got to decide somehow well how do we dish this out they don't just dish it out evenly for you know per capita per staff or so whatever. i mean there are some people who are calling for this idea that you know the money should just be split equally uh, between the universities or as a you know as a function of how many staff they have but that's never really gained traction and again this money it's called qr money quality research related money and uh, again, the way it is essentially split out is that universities who do, and I'm going to put this in very heavy quotation marks, better research will get a bigger share of that money. So I'm just going to pull out some examples here. This is all in the public domain. If we look at something like Oxford, they'll get 150 million pounds per year of, I think, around 2 billion. So they're getting a fairly big slice. My university will only get four million. I checked yours. I think you're getting something like, I don't know, 20, I, I believe. Oh, so it's not too good. bad, yeah. Um, but actually, it's quite interesting. If you look at the statistics on this, it's quite heavily skewed towards top universities. So more than 50% of the available money of that half of that pot goes to the top decile, right. which is sort of the top 10% of institutions. Um, so actually, it's 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 very heavily concentrated where that money goes, and anyway, so the way that's defined is through this ref exercise, which has which is comes around every seven years, and they change the rules of the game every seven years a little bit, uh, and in fact, this particular round has a very new set of rules, which was supposed to make it more transparent. I have some questions on whether that really happened, but there we are. And these metrics which come out of that will then define the next funding allocation round over the next seven years. And uh, essentially, universities will find their, their research income go up or down as a function of how well they do in that exercise. So it's pretty, you know, all, deck, uh, all hands on deck at the moment. Yeah, it sounds like that's pretty um, high pressure, right, for the universities. that they're, If your allocation that's going to be determined and you're not going to get a chance to change that for seven years, then you need to make sure that this is... Uh, you get this right. You got to get it right. Yeah, I mean, there is some th talk about get having a mid review, uh, um, sorry, a mid round update going forwards, uh, but that's still very loose. That idea, I'm not sure how that will happen because it's a massive exercise. So one thing about this exercise, it is huge. Academics are working on this for years beforehand. It's a very expensive exercise, and it really can't happen annually. It's something that can only happen every five, six, seven, eight years, just because it's such a the scale of this exercise is, is vast. So yes, you need to get it right because it's a one-shot game. And once you've made your submission, you'll get your money on that and that won't change for seven years. And if you do poorly and you lose money, there are implications. There are implications for the research you can do and there's implications for essentially how many people you can hire because a lot of universities 
The interesting thing about this money is that it's literally free money for universities. They can do with it whatever they want. Uh, and you would think most universities will stick it into, you know, some sort of science budget and they'll buy, I don't know, new equipment or yeah. laser new beams labs or labs yeah, or yeah. whatever. A lot of them put it into the pay budget. A lot of right. them do. And the reason for that is because most universities have the equipment they want. What they need is time. So yeah. if you and me are classic examples. We're social scientists. We need pen and paper. Yeah. It's not expensive. And laptop if possible. Uh, and laptop if possible, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More, more MacBooks, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, the laptops are available. So, uh, but time, time. Time is our biggest component yeah. of research, right? And time, unfortunately, costs money comes out of the pay budget so often you'll find that research this research uh, money goes into pay budgets at universities and if you lose money there that has implications on you know how many people you can hire and I guess for academics as well I mean we've talked uh, uh, quite a lot recently about uh, areas of economics which we might not initially think of as economics and the common theme is always that you know people have incentives and people respond to incentives and operate within constraints and so academics you know no different to uh, normal people right so we're no different um, and we respond to incentives so how do these incentives of the ref how does that impact on individual academics it's a good question I mean I can I can kind of answer this with two hats on one is a personal hat uh, and I, I'm sure you can as well our personal journey we've done this already uh, a couple of times and um, the reality is that this exercise is for Many people are kind of, you know, it can make or break careers to some extent. Well, I don't want to say break careers, but it can definitely accelerate your career very quickly if you have the right kind of outputs, right kind of publications, the right kind of search, especially at the right time. And uh, that is picked up by your managers, by your research directors, by your deans, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, however, also, because I am a research director where I work, you know, the the, the formal policy is that it won't have an impact on your career. Um, however, the reality is it, it does strongly lead to promotions, uh, often for academics, modern academics, uh, but also in the past, promotion criteria are, are, are very, he very heavily focused towards research. So if you do, if, you, if you're a great teacher, that's great. But if you're a great researcher, that means basically more money in your pocket. You know, you're, you're going to get to a professorship faster. So this exercise for many people is a kind of, um, what do you call this? It's kind of like a lighthouse. It tells people where to go and what the rules of the game are and how they should possibly behave at their own institution in relation to research to achieve certain institutional KPIs. And if you meet institutional KPIs... So they're key performance indicators, yeah? Yeah, yeah you know, you're going to have a an easier time <laughs> at the workplace. That's Yeah, so that's interesting because I think a lot of people wouldn't know, you know, wouldn't know in particular about the ref, uh, but also, you know, I get this question and you probably do as well, at this time of year, it's kind of summertime, people will say, oh, so, you know, you're on holiday now for three months, like the students, you enjoy your holiday and all this. Um, and it's a fair enough question because before I was an academic, I didn't really know what academics do. I just thought they just do teaching right that's that's what they do um but it sounds like that actually it's the research that's the key component and therefore 
uh, if you want to get promotion, all that sort of thing. And so, uh, and so the summertime... This probably should be your busiest time if you want to get ahead. So, I mean, this is a common misperception in my family as well. Probably, I th- I'm 100% sure my wife thinks the same thing, even though I've been telling for 15 years that, you know, even though I stay at home in the summer, I'm really thinking on the couch, right? You know, I'm doing a lot of heavy thinking now. But the, the reality is that... The, the standard academic model, and this will vary by university, but traditionally we have something called the 40-40-20 model where 40% of our time should be allocated to teaching, and that takes place over you know two, two terms per year, around 20 to 25 weeks, depending on yeah. where, where you are. Uh, 20% should be administrative things, and this could be marking exams or preparing courses or other kind of manage- management-type things. And 40% of your time should be research time. So, you know, when does that happen? The reality is that during teaching periods, it's very hard to do a lot of research. You can do a little bit, but it's hard to focus and do concentrated research. So most academics will find that their most productive time is when the students are gone. And that tends to be the time between sort of May and September, which is that kind of sort of classical summertime. And um, that is when I and you, well, you and I, for example, do a yeah. lot of work uh, looking at data, doing data analysis, writing papers, preparing ourselves for the conferences for next year. So that's really something that academics should be doing. Now, if you're not doing that, then that's an issue. You know, you will start paying the price down down the line. And one thing I should say, perhaps, is that certainly for academics like you and me, the lead the lead times are very long. Yeah. So this is the kind of time it takes. So in this exercise where we're going to kind of have all of the university's research uh, graded and assessed in some way, uh, and then at the individual level, your individual research publications that you've you've produced uh, during the time period, so they're going to be graded, but it takes, again, academic publishing. It's not something that you would particularly, um, you know, the man on the street would know about, man or woman on the street, but it takes a long time, right? So you write a paper, it's and then, time, yeah. f- and it's discipline specific. But for something, it's discipline specific. So in some disciplines, generally the science discipline, it tends to be faster, and it tends to be more related around top conferences as well. So they tend to have a faster, let's say, life cycle. You come up with an idea, be that some new mathematical formula, be that some new, I don't know, uh, uh, car engine or whatever, or some tool, right? And you can sort of get that out into the public, into, into your community very quickly. And because it's a, it's a science, it can be kind of hard tested. You know, it's, it's it's right or wrong, and then other people will take it and apply it, let's say, in their work. So it's a fairly quick turnaround, and you'll get most of your citations very early on. And citation is one of the many indicators that we might use for assessing research um, quality, let's say. Yeah. In other sciences, the arts and humanities, the social sciences, where you and I work, it tends to be much longer. So it takes us on average around two to three years to publish a paper and then it will take on average another two to three years before it really gets picked up by the community because we think about ideas and how perhaps you know things in society shift over the long run so it takes a lot longer for our peers to accept those kind of arguments and to integrate that into their work Um, so you know from the start to finish it can take six seven years before your idea that you've just started working on is out there in the scientific domain and we're not even talking about the public domain we're just talking about the scientific domain um and for that to be accepted so um you know if you're if you're an academic now and this ref exercise is coming next year and you're not ready then you have a big problem (laughs) because you're not going to get ready (laughs) that that does sound like it's uh kind of yeah such a long forecast and you're looking ahead so already perhaps now already thinking about the next 
ref cycle and, and yeah. kind of what publications you're going to have coming so out. So if you're smart, you'll be thinking about the next ref cycle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought about this ref cycle already in the last ref cycle. And uh, so, for example, my own personal story is that in the last ref cycle, it was very close for me and that all my output came just a couple of years beforehand. And I was quite, you know, I was worried about my future, actually. So I, I had serious doubts about my long-term employment prospects and my ability to hold down a job due to my lack of early publications. I think we all shared those doubts. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, we didn't. I was never, uh, I was always very confident you'd be absolutely fine. Yeah. No, but it's a scary process, especially for yeah. young academics um, who, who, who are just coming out of their PhD. A lot of them are throwing into the sort of, uh, you know, are, thro- are given a lot of teaching early on, and teaching's tough. You know, you have to prepare courses. It's not like at school. You have to prepare your own material. You have to prepare your own courses. You have to make it, you know, relevant. Uh, you know, you, you can't just read off what's in the textbook. You have to integrate research, the latest research, what's going on into your course, convey that to the students. So it takes a lot of time to prepare teaching. So if you're a young academic and then you have these big research pressures on you, it's really, really, really hard. And I find that I have a real problem getting what we call early career researchers to really develop into full-fledged academics and giving them the resources, the time, the space they need to get everything done because the pressures are so high these days. That's uh, um, that's really interesting. And I think I can reflect on that a little bit, this whole pressure that, that particularly early career researchers are under with the REF and with this kind of you need to get your publications, you need to show, demonstrate to the university really your value to the REF because that's going to affect how much money comes in. And so... I, I recall when I first started out as an, as an early career researcher and uh, was just starting teaching as well as all this pressure to kind of get your papers turned into, uh, your PhD turned into papers, turned into publications. I remember a senior colleague said to me, uh, you know, uh, on your teaching, if you're getting, when the students do your kind of assessment uh, and, and mark how good they think you are as a teacher and your course and things like that, if you're getting more than three out of five, uh, then you're spending too much time on teaching, right? <laughs> now, it was said kind of tongue-in-cheek, and it was, you know, it was definitely a kind of bit of a, a joke, but it does capture something, um, uh, caricature a little bit of kind of 15, 20 years ago, what the academic, um, I, I, I guess, the balance of research and teaching, right? And it's because, as it's... we know, as we've always talked about, you know, we respond to incentives, and given all this pressure, it is like, okay, teaching did have to take, definitely. like the back seat but that was when you know there were no fees or very low fees like thousand pounds per year but now we have students paying yes. nine thousand two fifty uh per year and that that changes right that changes the relationship between uh the university the lecturers and the students it's more ele- it introduces this element of kind of uh seller and, and customer uh type dynamic and so uh, not just that, but also then the the regulator, the office for students, are very you know keen to ensure that students are getting value for money. And so, I mean, what's your take on the kind of how that's shifting? So you said before, oh, if you're a good teacher, that's great, but if you're a good researcher, that's the only thing really that matters. I think for rightly you. so, it's changing. I think rightly so. So what what's happened over the last basically, like you say, over the last ten years is that in the past it was very much research orientated. There was one metrical assessment exercise that was the ref and that was simply the defining thing for people's careers and also in the past it used to be very much much more selective than now the ref so you needed four outputs universities set their own benchmarks in terms of quality a lot of them set it high and often it would be a real indicator of prestige if you were selected to go in 
So it was all about getting getting into that small group of people who who are submitted to the ref, right? That has now changed. The ref has changed itself. Uh, it is much more. Incl- I don't want to got to be careful here. Supposedly inclusive, although there's a lot of game playing underneath. Um, however, importantly, is that sort of really with the introduction of these much higher tuition fees, uh, the government and the regulator have introduced other assessment exercises, and one of them, the famous one, is called, of course, called TEF. The TEF. Yes, the <laughs> Teaching Excellent Framework, <laughs> which is actually an annual thing. So that comes around a lot more. Right? Yeah, so that's a bit different. Right? So, and, uh, so that comes around you know, every year, basically. And that really is a, is a much better measure of how your students are perceiving the university and the teaching quality. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, how, what do students get from research quality? They'll get a little bit, but often, you know, the main beneficiaries will often be PhD students and, and that kind of thing, not undergrads per se. So we have this, um, these TEF scores now. I, the unfortunate thing with this is that this is an additional exercise on top of a very complicated exercise. And TEF itself is very metrical based as well, different kind of metrics. And, and it, again, it leads to this idea that maybe there's, again, some game playing going on in universities around these metrics. And just to add on top of this, we are now also entering a period where we're going to get the KEF. The KEF. The KEF, <laughs> which, gets is, better. which is the knowledge exchange framework. So, you know, now the government has said, you know, uh, with its industrial strategy, of course, that universities aren't just educational establishment and do some, you know, uh, blue skies, white tower, you know, uh, research type stuff. No, we also have a mission to impact local communities, local businesses, industry. We call that sort of knowledge exchange. And that is also being measured now. And that's another completely different set of metrics. So what universities have faced with going forward is three types of assessment exercises that will run at various intervals, some yearly, some bi-yearly, some every seven years. And all these metrics are going to be produced and put into the public domain. Now, that's you would say that's probably a good thing. Unfortunately, uh, as an academic, the pressure hasn't gone down. It's just it's just gone up. So all of these exercises are still as important, or you know, are as important as they were, or as they were defined to be. And it's just a vast amount of pressures for individual academics now. You have to be a fantastic teacher. You have to be a fantastic researcher, and you have to be a fantastic person who changes the world through uh, you know through changing industry practice so, uh, well it sounds a very uh, yeah tough job um yes. so vastly underpaid vastly underpaid, yeah i think we all need um more recognition of this this pressure and and, and and the toughness of the job but just coming back to something you said about the the kef um and this idea of impacting more than just academia and that already is kind of covered by the ref uh, in in the form of impact, right? So yes. um, I have lost count of the number of meetings I've been to in the past decade where someone has said something like, "Impact is not going away," or you know, the impact agenda is going nowhere. And and essentially that this idea that impact is now an integral kind of metric of of research. So what 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 is impact? Interesting question. First introduced in 2014 as a metrical concept that academics had to not just show the, let's call it the academic output and, and you know, convince essentially other peers that their, their, their research ideas are sort of great research ideas. But academics had to provide evidence that our research ideas are actually impacting society. So it's one thing 
to sit on our offices and think about whatever theories we think about and sort of, you know, uh, write that into into articles and publish it in academic journals. But how many, you know, people read academic journals? Probably not that many. I mean, it's, it's you know, I wouldn't recommend it as a leisure activity. No, well, certainly not. And it's also... Um, an expensive business, right? So that's a whole other area, you know, <laughs> academic publishers. <laughs> Let's not go into yeah, that. You know, yeah, but it's yeah. difficult. Like even, even you talk to government, um, people who work in government departments sometimes and they say, oh, come and talk to us about your paper, send us your paper because we can't access the journals, yeah, right? So it's yeah, a yeah. kind of... It's a very closed environment, uh, reality. I mean, academic, it's, again, it's becoming more open and there's all sorts of movements happening there, but it's quite a closed environment still. And what the government, again, rightly so, has said that, okay, you know, in these assessment exercises, we have to somehow evidence that our ideas go beyond ourselves and impact society. And that could be now, society, uh, impact is, can be broadly defined. It can be a small region of people. It could be a company changing their business practice. It could be maybe something that you and I work in a lot is sort of influencing policy or at least evidencing uh, evidence for policy which then leads to some sort of new things. Um, and that essentially is impact. Now, in the current ref exercise, it's a little bit broader, but it's still pretty much, it's it's fairly openly defined. And it accounts for, I mean, I'm trying to remember the percentages, but, you know, it accounts for a good proportion it's of like the 25%, score. like 25%, right? It's not or a quarter. Like yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a quarter of the score is, is down to this impact. So you and I, um, well, you and I are, are part of this. So we have to evidence our impact, for example. So we talked about the Augur review yeah. the last time, and we mentioned sort of cheekily that, you know, we're in it. But actually, yeah. for you and me, this That's, is very important. Yeah, this is our is impact. This is a direct evidence of impact for us. And I need to use that those citations, those references to us, to our work in my statements to my research director which just well which happens to be me so that's 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 <laughs> slightly easier, easier. <laughs> you know say hey this guy's a great guy he's took lots of impact right so um but yeah you know i so i'll need to write a story about that and then submit that as part of this ref exercise i mean it sounds like a good idea in that like, uh, as we kicked off at the top saying you know, 50% of funding comes through the government, 50% through the research councils. But the research councils, well, they care about impact. They want to show that the research they're funding has impact on society and on the economy. The government wants to show that the impact, uh, that the research it's funding directly to universities is impacting society and, um, and, and policy and economics. And I guess it kind of links to this, um, this whole program in itself, Policy Matters. Um, we're keen to communicate uh, with the public, how research influences policy and the academics that we talk to, um, it's really interesting because there's all sorts of areas where we wouldn't have thought, particularly the economists we've spoken to, you, know, you wouldn't think this is economics, but actually um, the work people are doing, whether that's on, on health or crime or sports economics, these are really interesting areas that then these academics are going to policymakers, are going uh, to the public to engage and to to show them why this is you know why this is important how this can affect things and making uh, you know positive impacts on policy yeah yeah exactly i mean I, I guess one one of the i mean it's not the unfortunately media generally doesn't count as impact so i mean this directly wouldn't count as impact for us but it's certainly part of a wider idea that you and i as m let's call ourselves modern academics shall we yeah. have this mission to 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 try and get scientific ideas out there to the public uh so uh, i think i think it's good i think it's good that that we're being forced into that direction it puts many of us outside our comfort zones um it does also get us more media exposure you know i we have 
our PR teams are much more aggressive now in getting us on radio and TV and uh, I can't I, mean, I can't say I enjoy being on live TV I must say but <laughs> I think we've both got a good uh, face for radio it's our best medium um, but um, I think I think it's a good thing and um, you know of course we can't all be Brian Cox but I think it's 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 good that many of us are trying to be just a little bit more like him and to get some of our discipline specific ideas out to a broader set of people so just on a kind of personal level then, so tell me, friends, about your research, the impact uh, that your research is having, uh, you know, so that I can then tell your research director and then uh, <laughs> he'll be happy. It's a good question. I mean, uh, you know, what is, you know, this is really hard. So actually chasing impact and evidence in the impact is, 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 is quite a tough business and, uh, and it's quite a lot of work in its own right. Um, I think some of my best work and probably your best work as well is related to education and to this idea of social mobility. It's kind of how we started this whole uh, radio program where we've been talking about social mobility a lot. And it, the interesting thing is in that my work and our work, it's a little bit more, we do a lot of evidence which informs policy. But certainly a lot of what I do on social mobility, you know, I've been trying to explain this to somebody the other day, but there are no social mobility policies per se, right? Yeah. Social mobility is this high-level concept that affects lots of policies. And if you take the aggregate sum of these policies, you get some sort of, you can make some inference about where social mobility is heading in the policy space or in society. But there is no one, you know, bill that addresses social mobility. So it's actually a bit, not that easy for me to evidence direct engagement with with policymakers or you know here i've changed a policy and this is my evidence that my research has impacted society it's a little bit more diffuse but i've also got some you know some sort of you know funnier things you know we we're talking about media earlier for example so i have some odd papers one is about the weather well. and every summer especially now so again last week i was contacted by the media who you know when it gets hot and record temperatures are being set somebody in the media will type in you know what's the effect of 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 the weather on I don't know something and and my paper will pop up just because I title it you know the weather and well-being or something like this and uh, and they'll come get me you know they'll ask me for uh, for quotes and whatever about this paper and it's funny because that paper to me has probably the least scientific values of all the papers I've written but it seems to generate the most amount of media interest every time. Well, that's impact. I mean, we all want to know what the weather's going to do for our uh, well-being. And there are, again, it's a kind of, like you say, it's one of those things where it's a bit of a quirky paper. It's a bit funny, but actually there are real kind of policy implications uh, of, of, I mean, we can't change the weather particularly, <laughs> but um, uh, there are things that can come out of, of that kind of research. Uh, it's, it's funny. I'm, I remember when I wrote the paper and it, I, I had the first time I sort of did a little press release on it. And I remember somebody calling me and interviewing me and saying, you know, who funded this idea? This is just nonsense, you know. I was like, ooh, that seems a bit aggressive, you know. <laughs> but it's a good question. Who funded this, right? And back then I kind of said, oh, nobody funded it. I used my own time to do it. But actually, and the reality is that, of course, yeah. society funded the paper because we we're talking about this draw funding model earlier. I get research time from my university. That research time has to be paid from somewhere. It's basically paid from that half of that draw funding model, right? So, yes, you know, some society gave me a certain amount of money, time of, of let's say, not doing teaching, to, to, you know, go go about and write a funny little paper. So uh, I guess it wasn't, you know, the question did have uh, a serious component to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, 
from my point of view, trying to, as you said, trying to demonstrate impact, particularly as we've talked about, you know, the long time it takes for the kind of research to diffuse into the academic, you just get published and then kind of diffuse into the academic body of knowledge. Uh, and so really this kind of impact, you almost have to go in parallel with, you know, as you do the research, you've got to be out there kind of talking about it, talking to people. Um, yeah, the work I've done uh, that I think of as should have the most potential for impact possibly is, is stuff I've worked on about grammar schools. I think we've talked about before. Uh, and the, the, you know, the irony with grammar schools is that, you know... Very every, successful in changing policy there. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, everybody who's worked on grammar schools in academia, or, or almost across the board, comes to the same conclusions that these are actually quite regressive for, yes. for uh, social mobility. You know, they, they do help marginally, like at the top of, of the kind of education and ability distribution but actually the impacts on the people who don't go and on the other people in the areas where they're grammar schools there are these negative impacts compared with you know similar people in in comprehensive school areas and you know they far outweigh any positive effects but that has had absolutely <laughs> kind of you know the government have just gone certainly in the past have gone exactly the opposite direction i thought you know we'll bring back grammar schools this is going to be great and everybody who's you know thinking I'm trying to demonstrate impact here. I've had like negative impact. <laughs> it's like the opposite of impact. But um, I'm comforted by the fact that this isn't just me. This has happened to uh, everybody. everybody. And, and yeah. that seems to have gone quiet, you know, gone quiet in the last uh, uh, last couple of years. So that's, that's good. But um, I guess on a serious note, trying to have impact, you or at least, you know, we need to be kind of talking in these uh, debates and the public debates, talking to the policymakers uh, and, and making sure that the evidence is out there. Now, we can't do anything about whether or not the government chooses in its uh, wisdom, again, um, some quotes around that potentially, uh, but what they choose to do with that evidence, that's out of our hands. But I think the important thing for us as academics is making sure that there is good, rigorous um, evidence for them to at least consider when they're making those kind of policy decisions. Yeah, just like for Brexit. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so on that note. <laughs> on that note, I think we'll, uh, we'll, we'll leave it there. So. Yeah. And next time you see an academic, dear listeners, you know, give them... <laughs> Give them some love. Give them some love. Yeah, we need it. <laughs> We're under a lot of pressure. You've been listening to Policy Matters. My name is Matt Dixon. My name is Hans Buscher. And we'll be back with more soon.